Amen. You can grab a seat. It's certainly a joy to be with you this morning here in the Lord's house, uh, where he has promised us that he will be with his people. Uh, I'm Daryl, I'm the assistant pastor here, uh, and uh, delighted to be able to open the word with you this morning to see what God may have for us uh, as we have continued our walk through uh, this series that we've entitled Be Curious, uh, The Search for the Real Jesus, where we ask you uh, to do just that, to be curious with us as we visit different stories uh, of different encounters that Jesus had with uh, all types of folks. Uh, how did he interact with the poor? How does he interact with the rich? How does he interact with women? How does he interact with the religious elite? How does he interact with those who are sick, uh, those who are uh, in desperate need of, of healing of their body, of healing of their soul? How does Jesus uh, interact with these folks? And then what does he want us to learn from that? Uh, what are we to take away uh, for how uh, Jesus deals even with our own hearts, uh, even this morning? And so that's where we are. Um, and so we've been walking through this series, and today we come to the curious case of Peter the disciple. Uh, Peter was, uh, he gets a lot of airtime in scripture. We know a lot about Peter. Uh, he wrote a couple books uh, in the New Testament. Uh, he was uh, one of God's, or rather one of Christ's uh, almost favorite disciples. Uh, he was kind of in that inner group of three with James and John. And so we know a lot about Peter. Um, he gets a ton of airtime. Uh, but he's also known for his hasty reactions. Uh, Peter was a guy who was sort of ready, fire, aim uh, when it came to living his life. Uh, because when Jesus would tell him things of things that Peter would do, Peter would deny them immediately. Uh, when Jesus told Peter that he would deny him, Peter said he wouldn't. Uh, when Jesus said that all the disciples will leave, Peter said that he would be the one who would stay. Uh, Peter chopped a dude's ear off uh, in the garden when they tried to arrest Jesus. He was very much uh, a guy who uh, was quick to act. Um, and for Peter, forgiveness, mercy, uh, and grace, all the things that Jesus came to teach were likely hypothetical to him uh, because uh, of his reaction all the time, except uh, when he needed it the most. Uh, there's a story of Peter's failure uh, that we all know too well, uh, where he denies Jesus on the cross, um, denies that he knows who Jesus is, um, and then he kind of gets caught in that. And so we see Peter uh, fall from grace, really, um, and really become kind of a failure. And, it's, uh, and so we're gonna look at John 21, uh, where Jesus encounters Peter post-resurrection. Uh, and we'll see that it is a passage about grace. It's a passage about how grace flows to the lowest places, uh, how grace flows to uh, those who are in desperate need of it. Um, it's a story about how grace covers our shame, and it's a story about a man whose complete confidence uh, on how he lived his life morphed into complete failure. Uh, and because those things happened, the complete confidence morphing into complete failure he had to lose himself into a complete savior. So there's three things we'll see in this passage. Peter's response, Peter's repentance, and then Peter's restoration. So his response to seeing Jesus, his repentance with Jesus, and his restoration by Jesus. So let's look at John 21. We're gonna be in the first 17 verses. Uh, so let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word this morning. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm gonna go fishing. And they said to Peter, then we'll go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, 
Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full, for, full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, a fish laid out on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, yet the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Then Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning as we look uh, at a man in desperate need of redemption, uh, may you remind us uh, that we all sit in that seat, uh, that we all are here in desperate need of redemption, otherwise we wouldn't have got out of bed. Uh, we are here because we're hopeful uh, that you will move. Uh, and so Jesus, would you do so? Uh, would you be so kind as to move in our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you be so kind to move even my own heart this morning uh, as I struggle to believe this passage? Uh, God the Father, open our ears, open our eyes, uh, allow us to see your son as beautiful, allow us to see your son as believable, and we will leave here rejoicing because you've done great things, and this is in his name we do pray, amen. Uh, so we're gonna open this passage looking at the response of Peter of our three points this morning. And if we look at how this passage opens, it opens with the disciples and they're just hanging out. Um, not that unusual. Uh, they're, they're just broing out with one another. And honestly, how could you not? Uh, if you think of uh, your own relationships and your own friendships that you have uh, with folks that you've gone through a lot of hard things with, uh, you know that those friendships uh, are solid because uh, of all the kind of the trials and the adversity and all those things that football coaches will say, like all those things that you'll go through together uh, to kind of create even a greater, deeper friendship on the other side. And if you imagine the disciples, you think of all that they had gone through together, um, how they had been called to leave their professions, go and follow Jesus. Uh, they saw all these miracles. They saw uh, all these folks be healed. They saw all these folks come to salvation. Uh, they saw Jesus die. They saw him suffer. Uh, they saw him uh, buried. They saw him rise again from the dead. Uh, and so you have to think, uh, if you're one of the uh, disciples, one of the apostles, it might be a little hard for you to relate to other folks. Uh, if you imagine them going to a small group, they're like, oh, that's cool, you're an accountant? Well, I saw Jesus rise from the dead. Uh, they'd be the ultimate one-uppers. And so they had a hard time likely even finding friends. So we see that they're together. This is post-resurrection. They haven't been commissioned yet. Uh, to go out into the world. And so uh, they do what all of us do. They go to work. Uh, Peter says, I'm gonna go catch some fish. 
And the other guys were like, we don't have anything else to do, so I guess we'll go fishing with you. Uh, fishing was, for, for some of them, remember, when they were being called, this was their job. Uh, and so they just go back to their job. It wasn't that fishing was lesser. Uh, it wasn't fishing wasn't as cool as ministry. Um, it's probably quite the opposite. Ministry's kind of lame compared to fishing. And so what, um, what these guys would have known is that they just needed to go back to work. Uh, and so they go back to work uh, doing a noble job, uh, doing simply what they knew how to do. So they pile on the boats and they head out and they don't catch anything. Uh, they don't catch a daggum thing. Uh, they, the one job that they're capable of doing, they're not that good at it. And so these guys are here, they fished all night, they were up all night, John tells us, he rubs a little salt water into the wound here to let everyone know they didn't catch a thing and they were out there all night. Uh, spent all night on the sea, which uh, in scripture, the sea is very dangerous, the sea is very chaotic. Uh, the sea is a metaphor in a lot of scripture um, that we see, uh, we see, that when things are compared to what the sea is like, it's always chaotic. Uh, in Psalm 46, one of the, the more famous psalms, uh, the psalmist writes that even if the mountains were tossed into the heart of the sea, uh, still he would follow Jesus, meaning the mountain, which is uh, this, this picture that, of a thing that doesn't move, a thing that's steady, a thing that you build your life on, gets tossed into the most chaotic thing you can think of, still Jesus is faithful. Uh, John, uh, the apostle, when he's given a glimpse into what the new heaven and new earth look like in the book of Revelation, uh, he makes sure to note that there was no sea there. Uh, John wasn't saying that there's not gonna be water in heaven. Of course there's gonna be water. What he's saying is there's no chaos. And so these guys spend all night out in the chaotic, crazy sea with things in there that were bigger than them that could eat them, uh, and they didn't catch, they didn't catch anything. Uh, failures really at the one job they were qualified to do. And so they're just sitting there, the night ends, they're on an empty boat. And then some stranger from the shore uh, just reminds them, some strange voice from the shore says, hey, did you guys catch any fish? And it's like, no, old man, crazy weirdo. Or don't talk to strangers. Uh, we haven't caught anything. Because uh, at this moment, they didn't realize that it was Jesus who was asking them that. Uh, we get the privilege of that because we have the scriptures. Uh, but as they're in the middle of it, they don't realize it. And so then this stranger tells them, hey, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. I bet you'll catch some fish over there. You probably didn't look there. Like, just throw it on the other side of the boat. And then it hits John that this is Jesus. And it hits John that it's Jesus, not because he remembers what he sounds like, although that's certainly part of it. It hits John that it's Jesus because they've been in this spot before. If you look all the way back in Luke chapter five, uh, Luke tells a story just like this. These guys were up all night, they fished all night, they didn't catch anything. Jesus tells them, throw your nets on the other side, and they pull in a bunch of fish. What Jesus is doing here is Jesus is not making fun of them for being bad at their jobs. What he's doing is telling them through their memories that he is here to do business with them. And so John looks in verse seven, he looks at Peter, he says, and screams that it's the Lord, and the words are barely out of his mouth before Peter throws himself overboard. Peter throws himself into the sea, and he goes swimming to Jesus. Which in Luke chapter five, when this happened, Jesus, Jesus told him to cast their nets on the other side, they caught all those fish. Peter looked at Jesus and said, get away from me. Get away from me, for I'm unclean. Get away from me, because you're too holy. 
And here in the second time that this happens, we have Peter running to Jesus because Peter's gonna be different now. Peter hadn't denied Jesus before. Peter's life hadn't fallen apart before. And then these guys hear Jesus call out to them. My favorite movie is Forrest Gump. Uh, if you know the scene where Forrest jumps out of the, the boat to go swim to Lieutenant Dan, it's probably like that. Like it hits a dock, like it's right there. He could have just waited for us. And John tells us that they were only 100 yards away and Peter jumps in the water and the disciples probably pass Peter while he's swimming. Like, hey man, should have stayed the boat, nerd. And so they're all going to, the, going to the shore and Peter gets there and this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to the disciples, John tells us. But it might be the first time that Peter actually sees Jesus for who he is. This might be the first time that Peter sees Jesus for who he is because remember, Peter stabbed Jesus in the back. He might have stabbed him in the front because he denied him. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is on a mission. And he's not necessarily on a mission to get all the disciples to come eat breakfast. He's on a mission to get to the heart of Peter. This isn't an appearance for the sake of an appearance. This is gospel surgery. Because in Luke 5, when Peter said, get away from me, Peter couldn't handle his holiness because Peter hadn't been broken by his sin yet. Peter had some self-pity, right? Even his confession to Jesus said in the first miraculous catch, hey, get away from me, like you're too good for me. Uh, He had some self-pity, but he didn't have repentance. He felt bad. He felt some remorse, but he wasn't repentant. And as they say in the recovery world, discovery is not recovery. Just because you realize something doesn't mean that you're healed from it. That realization is not transformation. Peter may have realized that Jesus was holy, but Peter's life had yet to be transformed by that. Peter uh, had discovered his heart, but his heart had not been recovered. He kept Jesus at arm's length because there were too many, there, there, were, there were too many reasons for Peter not uh, to come into contact with Jesus. And probably the chief among them, I was talking to my friend George about this passage and he said there's two people that loved Peter. It was Jesus and it was Peter. Peter loved himself. That was the real reason he didn't want to be around Jesus. He didn't want Jesus to change him. He liked himself and Peter thought that Jesus needed him uh, to defend him. So I chopped that guy's ear off. And so I made all these outlandish statements that he would never deny Jesus. But Jesus never needed Peter to defend him. What Jesus wanted was for Peter to follow him. All the brash statements that he made, that he won't let him die, that he'll follow Jesus into hell, that he'll, he'll enact violence against someone. He didn't want anything to do with Jesus because it meant Jesus was going to have to move some things around in his life and in his heart. Peter was hanging around the creek bank, but he hadn't fallen in yet. This is what was, was so indicative of the life of Peter, was that Peter never had any real repentance. I think we're all in that spot. We're all in that spot, right? We love ourselves a little too much. We know we mess up. Uh, We make promises that we're not gonna keep. Uh, And and instead of of running to Jesus, we will run away from him. And this is what Peter has been doing, is what Peter made a life of doing. And in this passage, we see 
that Peter had nothing left to lose. This is why he goes running to Jesus. His life had fallen apart. He had done the thing that he said he would never do, which is turn his back on Jesus. And so he jumps in the water and he swims to Jesus. But it's not going to be enough for Peter just to be remorseful. It's not even enough for Peter just to realize that it was Jesus on the shore. Jesus is going to lead him into repentance. And he doesn't do this by force, but he does it by his memory. He's already started this. He's already recalled him to the first time they had a miraculous catch of fish. And now he's about to do some serious gospel surgery, which is gonna be our second point, the repentance of Peter. If we look at verse nine uh, here, John makes kind of a point that's easy to pass over. Um, this is what theologians have, been, have called the gentle violence of repentance. And it's taking place right now in front of Peter. Because look at what John says in verse nine. It says, Jesus was sitting by a charcoal fire and he laid out some fish and he laid out some bread. Jesus, all throughout this story, starting with the recall of the first miraculous catch of fish, even Peter walking on the water and sinking, Peter jumping into the sea, jumping into the chaos. And now we get to a charcoal fire. And it would be easy to gloss over this uh, because it seems like it doesn't matter that much but it wasn't a charcoal fire just because Jesus didn't have like a Traeger grill that he could cook these fish with. It was a charcoal fire because back in John chapter 17, just a few chapters before, John mentions charcoal fire in another place. And it's when Peter denied Jesus for the third time. That when he denied Jesus for the third time and the rooster crowed for the second time, Peter was standing around a charcoal fire. And all of you know, you know how nostalgia works. I don't know how it works, I'm not smart enough, but you know how it works. You know how memories work. You know that there are things that if I rolled them in here that would trigger you and immediately take you back to a point in your childhood. Uh, you knew that if there was the smell of fresh cut grass on the baseball field, you would know that feeling. Uh, you would know your hands being sticky from popsicles melting in the summer. Uh, you would know the taste of watermelon. You would know um, the smell of a funnel cake from a parking lot carnival. Maybe that was just me. Uh, you would know the anger of a parent coming home. You would know what slamming a door meant. Uh, you would know what the yelling meant. You would know um, being scared in a parking garage. You would know uh, somebody calling you that you don't wanna call you. You know the smell of booze and bad decisions. You know yourself well enough to know that there are those things that if we were to parade those in here right now, you would be terrified. This is what Jesus is doing to Peter. He's lighting this charcoal fire, not because he needs somehow to cook these fish. He's reminding Peter of what happened the last time he was around one. Jesus is walking Peter back into the moment of his deepest shame. This is what we hate about Jesus. It's what I hate about Jesus. It's what scares us that there are doorknobs in my heart to messy closets that I don't want Jesus going into. There are places within my soul that I don't want Jesus to go into and yet he's going to go into them. And for Peter, imagine what's going through his mind here. He's sitting here with Jesus. They haven't talked about it yet. They haven't talked about his denial yet. And then there's this fire burning. 
It's crackling. The smell is in his nose. Uh, my wife loves to go camping, which honestly is my least favorite thing about her. And she always tells these stories about like how her dad would build these fires. She's like, it's so fun. And it was so cold. And I'm like, why'd you go? It's, it's not fun if it's cold. Um, that's what's happening here. Peter is around this fire and his senses are going nuts. And Jesus is doing this because Jesus is leading him somewhere. For Peter, the charcoal fire would not have been a happy memory. It was around this fire that he said he didn't know Jesus. It was around this fire that he called down curses from heaven on a middle school girl who had backed him into a corner. Peter would not have loved this, but Jesus said, I'm gonna bring you here to show you because I promised you, Peter, that your willpower and your discipline and your motivation was not gonna save you. Peter, you can make all the promises in the world. I promise you, Peter, I'll meet your promise. I'm gonna tell you that you're not gonna make it. And Peter still says, I can do this. I'm never gonna leave you. We do the same thing, right? Jesus is telling Peter, he's telling us that your willpower is gonna fail you and if it hasn't yet, it's going to. So Jesus builds a fire. He reminds them of the miracle of the fish and the bread even here. He's calling Peter's soul to remember the mercies of God on his behalf. And here's the thing, that when they get around the fire, Jesus doesn't shove Peter's head into it. He doesn't make him like walk on the coals to prove his loyalty. When he brings him to the fire, he cooks him breakfast. Jesus walks into Peter's greatest shame and he cooks him a meal and he sits there and they don't say a word and they just eat. Jesus is doing that for us. Imagine those places of your deepest shame. You know what they are. You don't want anybody going there. Jesus is saying, I will march right into this place of your deepest shame and I will cook you a meal and we will sit there and we'll talk when you're ready. This is what Jesus does. This is his gentleness. It might be his greatest characteristic. We have to ask ourselves, is there room in our hearts and in our world for a God who loves us that way? Is there room in our spiritual DNA for a Jesus who knows everything about us but doesn't run away? Could this be perhaps how God will deal with your most shameful parts of your story? We're not talking about the guilty parts. We all know that we're guilty, right? We know that guilt is wrongdoing. We know that shame is wrong being. Being guilty says I did something wrong. Shame says I am wrong. And that's where this unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil love to sink their claws into us. If they can get you to the point of shame, which is super easy, it happened in Genesis. It's really easy, it's a short walk to get there. If they can sink their claws into your shame, the devil knows it's gonna be really hard for you to get out. But you're gonna try to get out on your own. You're gonna try to get out by your own willpower. You're gonna realize that that can't do it. You're gonna realize that your therapist can't do it. You're gonna realize that the Enneagram can't do it. You'll realize that Elliot can't do it. That the only thing that can get you out of your shame is if Jesus moves into it with you. And he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't take you and like run you away from it. He takes you right through it. Uh, it's like, um, I don't know if y'all did this when you were kids. There was a song, I think it was a book too. It was called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. And you like tapped your legs like that. We didn't have toys, so that's what we did for fun. <laughs> and so there was a song called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. 
and uh, you're like going on this bear hunt. I don't know why we're teaching kids to go hunt bears, but we're going on this bear hunt and you get to the river and you can't go under it and you can't go over it, you gotta go through it. You get to the woods, you can't go over them, you can't go under them, you gotta go through them. That's how Jesus is gonna deal with your shame. You can't go around your shame, you can't go over your shame, you can't go under your shame. He's gonna take you through it. He's gonna take you through it, not because he's a bully. He's gonna take you through it to show you he's the one who can overcome that. He's the one who's covered it. And Peter is looking at, or Jesus rather, is looking at Peter, and Peter is filling his belly with fish sticks. He's filling his nose with all these memories, and he's saying to Peter, we're gonna go through this. We're about to go through this. And Peter saw Jesus and felt relief, but Jesus looks at Peter and he leads him into repentance, but it's still unspoken. I still haven't talked yet until God breaks the silence, until Jesus starts to move. This brings us to our final point, the restoration of Peter. If we look at verses 15 through 17, uh, they've eaten all the fish sticks, they've eaten the cheddar bay biscuits, which I'm assuming were there. Um, they're all gone. Jesus speaks. Jesus breaks the silence. He speaks right to Peter and says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Hey, Peter, do you love me? And that piercing pain you feel in your chest right now is right. That Jesus, the God of the universe, is now looking at Peter, this guy who stabbed him in the back, and he's saying, Peter, do you love me? I don't know about y'all, if I'd have been one of these other disciples at this moment, I'd have thrown myself into the sea, I'd have faked a phone call, I would have done something to get out of this because this had to be incredibly awkward. And Jesus is standing there and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes. And Jesus tells him, then feed my sheep. And Jesus asks him a second time, Peter responds, yes. Jesus tells him, feed my sheep. And then Jesus asked him for a third time, Peter, Simon, Simon son of uh, John, do you love me? And then Peter gets annoyed. Peter probably forgot that he stabbed Jesus in the front. Jesus, Peter probably forgot. He doesn't have any business being annoyed with Jesus. But he gets super annoyed with Jesus when Jesus asked him a third time. He says, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him for a third time, feed my sheep. And honestly, it's a bizarre exchange for us but if we slide our feet into some Hebrew sandals, we'll know why this matters. Peter failed. In the Hebrew Bible, and really in all of Hebrew literature, uh, they didn't have exclamation points, they didn't have emojis. And so if something was like a big deal, they had to say it three times. This is why in Isaiah, when the angels are flying around the throne, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They don't say holy three times because that's the only word they know. They say it because they're like, he's not just holy, he's extra holy. He's, he's holy, he's a holiness that I can't describe. He's a holiness that we can't even wrap our minds around. We don't understand this. And so we're gonna say that he's just holy, holy, holy and leave it at that. So when Peter denies Jesus, when he says, I don't know you, I don't know you, I'm gonna curse you, little girl, I don't know you, what he's doing here is that he's not just denying Jesus, he's denying him. It's as if Jesus never existed to Peter. Peter is saying, I don't give a crap about him. Let him die. I don't even know who he is. So Peter denied him. And so Jesus isn't just being a bully here by like asking him over and over and over again if he loves him. 
He's not asking him if he loves him because Jesus is some kind of egomaniac. He's asking him because it's quite possible that Peter didn't love Jesus until now. Remember, Peter loved morality. Remember, Peter loved power. Remember, Peter loved Peter. Peter loved being right. And Jesus is leading Peter to what his heart really wants and what he truly desires, to be fully known, to be fully loved, and to be told that that's okay. That's what Peter really wants. That's what he really needs. And Jesus is now restoring him in the same manner. Three times did Peter deny him. Three times Jesus said, do you love me? He's undoing what Peter had done. This is the business of Jesus, right? He undoes what Adam had done. He undoes what Noah had done. He undoes what Abraham had done. He undoes what sin had done. He is undoing what Peter had done by saying that he didn't know him. Jesus is saying, I'm restoring you, Peter. I'm restoring you. I'm bringing you back. I'm bringing a sinner back into the family of God. I'm bringing a sinner back home. I'm wooing you to me, Peter. And he isn't sending Peter back to Hebrew school. He isn't placing him in some remedial courses online. He isn't holding him back a grade. He's restored fully both to Jesus and to his mission in the world. To preach the gospel, Peter, go and feed my sheep. I'm about to go to heaven, Peter. Somebody's gotta stay here and preach to these people and I want you to do it. I'm restoring you, Peter. I'm bringing you back. And Peter can now preach the gospel because the gospel had come home to Peter. He didn't do this before because he didn't really believe it. He finally understands that Jesus pursues lost souls. He saw this a thousand times. He saw the miracles. He saw the people who were hurting. He saw Jesus praying with people. He heard, overheard Jesus praying to God the Father himself. Peter would have been around for all those things. He was there when Judas denied him. He was there when the bleeding woman came through. He was there when the demoniac was cutting himself with stones in a cave. Peter was there for all of it. He heard the Sermon on the Mount, but it likely never took root until now. And if you remember, on Easter morning when uh, Elliot was preaching this on Easter Sunday, that when the uh, disciples got to the tomb and there was an angel there and the angel said, go and tell the disciples that he is risen and go and tell Peter. Go and tell Peter. Tell Peter that he's forgiven. Tell Peter that I have cast his sin away as far as the east is from the west. I have thrown it into the depths of the sea. I will remember it no more. Go and tell Peter that my righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Tell Peter to arise and come to Jesus. Tell Peter that there is forgiveness of sins in the blood of the lamb. Put yourself in Peter's shoes for a second. You have to hear this story. His shame is gonna eat him alive. You have to hear the story that Jesus calls to sinners and says, come back to me. And look at Peter again. He's the one who was always right. He's the one who was always covering his tracks. And now he's letting the whole world know that this story happened. We know these stories about Peter because Peter allowed them to be in scripture. Peter had nothing left to hide anymore because he had found redemption. 
And that meant that he didn't have to hide. And friends, this morning, the same is offered to us through the free offer of the gospel that Jesus Christ meets us in our moments of our deepest need, in our moments of our darkest shame, and he says, son and daughter, arise and come to me. Son and daughter, come and eat breakfast. I know what you did. I know how your heart breaks. I know how the last thing in the world you want to do is to lift your face and look at me, but I beckon you, I beseech you, to use a biblical word, raise your head and look at Jesus. Find in me that what is really true. Find in me that it's really true that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Find that it's really true that Jesus Christ isn't going to bring up your sin to you anymore. That when he says he forgives and that he forgets it, he forgives and he forgets it. That we can move forward in our mission to bring the gospel to the world. Could it be that Jesus knows everything about you and he's not running away? And that's really good news. Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning, my heart needs to believe this. I can't do that on my own. Jesus, we can't do this on our own. To even believe this, we need the faith that you give to believe. And so Jesus, would you do this for us? As we spend the next few minutes in song and confession and assurance of pardon and doxology, would you meet us where we are? Would you meet our hearts? Would you call us home? Remind us that our sin is not the truest thing about us. That the truest thing about us is that we are loved by you. Lord, let us walk in that. In your name we do pray, amen.